Amen. And Lord, you are worthy to be worshipped, to be praised, to be honored. You are a great and an awesome God. And we ask as we go to your word, Lord, you would be our teacher tonight. Lord, we just thank you that your Holy Spirit comes and ministers to our hearts. Just open us up, prepare us to receive from you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Great to have you here. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis. Again, guys, if you haven't signed up for the men's retreat, you need to repent and go sign up. We should be going, amen? You can have a great time. You'll be blessed. Let me encourage you to go. I, I said it before. I'll say it again in case you missed it. If any man on this planet, if I could have any man on this planet come speak to our men, it would be Ross Rhodes, and he's coming. This thing is messing up on me. So uh, let me encourage you to come. All right. Well, let me catch you up because it's been a few weeks since we looked at Genesis. Um, if you'll recall, the first three chapters really talk about, first two chapters about the creation. You get to chapter three and you see the fall of man. Where Eve fell into sin, you know, she was deceived by the serpent. You get to chapter four and you see their first offspring. Well, two of the named offspring. We don't know if there was their first offspring, but maybe not. But we know they had many, many children, but Cain and Abel, and we see that Cain is jealous because uh, Abel offers a more uh, acceptable sacrifice. Remember we talked about the way of Cain, that Cain's trying to come to God his own way. God says you have to come with a blood sacrifice, and he brings, you know, vegetables and fruit because he was a farmer. Now, it doesn't mean that God, you know, loves ranchers more than he loves farmers. It means that God has a plan for the way that man must come to him, and we come God's way, not our way. Amen? Only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, it would require the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. So when Cain saw that Seth's sacrifice, or not Seth, Abel's sacrifice was received and not his own, he killed his brother. Well, then we know that God placed a, a curse upon Cain, and Cain went out and, and you know, was a vagabond the rest of his life, and his, his whole lineage was cursed. Now, Seth then came and took his place. So in chapter Four, the second half, we looked at the way of Cain, the consequences of rebellion upon your life. Grab the tape if you're interested in that. And then last time we looked at the line of Seth, that God, God's plan cannot be destroyed. And if you weren't here, let me encourage you, much of the chapter is a genealogy, but if you were here, you know that genealogies are in the Bible for a reason, amen? And it was amazing how much we saw the, that genealogy established the age of the earth. It reestablished the line of the Lord's anointed. It established sin's consequences. It established the deliverance of the righteous. And as we saw last time, it prophetically spelled out the plan of salvation. If you weren't here, just to go over that real quickly, we saw in the genealogy, through Seth, Adam's name means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal. Canaan means sorrow. Mahalalel means the blessed of God. Jared means shall come down. Enoch means teaching. Methuselah means his death shall bring. Lamech means the despairing. And Noah means rest. So when you go through the genealogies and you look at the meanings of their names, it says this. Man appointed mortal had sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching and his death shall bring the despairing rest. Does the Bible rock or what? All the way back in the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5, we've got the gospel spelled out by simply looking at the names of those in the line that would bring the Messiah. Now, as we come to chapter 6, 
I plan on teaching the whole chapter, but it's not going to happen. And in part because the second half of the chapter really goes with chapter 7 and the flood of Noah. But tonight we're going to look at the fact that it's what the Lord sees that matters. If you're a note taker, it's what the Lord sees that matters. It doesn't matter what men think. It doesn't matter what men believe. It's what does the Lord see. Amen? And so we're going to see a clear example of that in tonight's chapter. So the points for tonight's message... Man looks on the outward appearance is point number one. Number two, God looks on the heart. And we'll see that man looks on the outward appearance and because he does, he succumbs to the lust of the flesh. But because God looks on the heart, he knows our thoughts and our intentions. So let's begin in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. In what the Lord see, it's what the Lord sees that matters. And it begins by man looking on the outward appearance. So right now we've been given a genealogy. It goes all the way down to Noah, and now we're going to start getting an in-depth look at the time of Noah. And it says in verse 1, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. Now remember the incredible lifespans of the people. We saw it in chapter 5, that the average lifespan was 912 years. They lived a long time. I mean, imagine, I talked about this, you'd be middle-aged at 550 right? And you get your driver's license at 160. I mean, you know, go through puberty, whatever. But the point is, they lived a long, long time. And we know that God had given them a command or a call to go out and, and multiply. And so imagine living 912 years. How many kids might you have? I don't know. I mean, the Bible doesn't say. It says sons and daughters. It could have had 50 kids or 100. I don't have any idea. But here's the point. From Genesis 3 to Genesis 6, verse 1, there's a 1,600-year period of time. So when we get to this point in time, I looked at many different commentators, and using just basic math, if the average person only had five kids, they only had five kids, and they lived, you know, a normal lifespan, but every 80 years was another generation being passed on to the next generation, they estimate there could have been as many as 13 billion people on the earth. Now, there may not have been that many. But there certainly were hundreds of millions and possibly billions upon the earth. So sometimes we get to Noah and we think, oh, it was Noah and his family and, you know, two cities full of people. And, the, you know, Noah and his family were the only ones. No, the world was populated. As it says there, they multiplied on the face of the earth. Again, we see that they were multiplying. But sadly, we're going to see that as they multiplied upon the face of the earth, so did their sin, and sadly, their walk with the Lord. Now again, our population today is about 6.6 billion. Their population may have been double that, but it certainly was a large number, and we're gonna, it's going to be really sad to see next week just how few of those people are actually walking with God. Now, remember too that we have 6.6 billion people now and we don't live anywhere near as long and we don't live in the same environment they lived in. We live in a fallen, you know, much more fallen creation after the flood. So again, it's an, it'll be interesting to know when we get to heaven just how populated the world really was. But again, not only was the earth growing in numbers, but it was growing in wickedness. And as we're about to see, the multiplication came largely through sexually immoral relationships, marriages outside of God's will. Look what it says in verse 2. So they're multiplying on the face of the earth. Daughters were born to them. And it says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves 
of all whom they chose. Now, this is an extremely, I don't want to use the word controversial, but much debated part of Scripture. Because people wonder who these sons of God are. These sons of God who came into the daughters of men. Now the first interpretation, let me just say the word sons of God there is bene Elohim. Elohim is the name for almighty God. So sons of God. Now, the first interpretation is that in other places that term is used speaking of angels. So those out there who say, what they're saying is that angels came down, saw beautiful women on the earth, had sex with them, and they had children. And there's people I respect that believe that. But you know what? Here's the point, guys. Jesus said of angels, when questioned by the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection, you remember that story where he said, you know, if the woman's married and her husband dies, in, in the Leverite law, they would have to then marry one of the brothers, would have to take her if she didn't have children. And so they tried to trip Jesus up and say, well, what if she's married to seven different brothers and then they all die and then she goes to heaven, whose husband or whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus said, you know, because they were just mocking the resurrection, he told them, look, when they get to heaven, they'll be like the angels, neither married nor given in marriage. Angels don't get married. So angels did not come down and have sex with these women and produce children. But it's amazing how many people believe that. And I'll talk about it in a minute, how we get away from falling into that trap. The key, remember, is always context, okay? So I do not believe that there's any way in the world that that's true. Sadly, there are those who do. The Bible says that angels are not given in marriage. That's good enough for me. I even heard one commentator say, well, angels weren't given in marriage, so that just means they came down and had sex with the women anyway. But they weren't married to them. I'm like, no, wait a minute. So in heaven, the angels are having sex. They're just not married because heaven's less holy than the earth where we're supposed to be married. That's just dumb. Read the Bible, amen? The word of God is the authority. I don't believe that. I'm sharing this with you because some of you no doubt have heard these things. If you hadn't, I'm just, I want to make sure that we grasp a hold of it. So this interpretation, again, is out of context with the verses before it and directly contradicts what Jesus said, that angels are neither married or given in marriage. The second interpretation is that these sons of God were those who, through, through their wicked behavior, opened themselves up to demonic possession. Then these demons possessed them. They were joined in marriage, and they produced these ominous offspring, these huge giants we're going to see in a couple verses. And I've heard entire series of messages taught from that very thing that that's why God brought the flood was because there was all these half demon, half people walking around and he had to start all over. Uh, don't believe that either. You know, I have a problem with this interpretation. Let me tell you why I do. Because they're called the sons of God. If they were demons, would they be called the sons of God? Or would they be called the sons of Belial, the sons of Satan, the sons of the enemy? Amen. I'm sharing this with you because no doubt many of you have heard that. Now, the third interpretation and the one that makes the most sense to me and makes sense in the context, what did we just read in chapters 4 and 5? We saw the line of Cain and the line of Seth, right? The line of Cain was the ungodly line, the line of those in rebellion, the line of those who had walked away from God. And the line of Seth was the line of the godly, those who were following after the Lord. So you read chapter 4, you read chapter 5, and the very next chapter it says that the sons of God came into the daughters of men to me very clear the sons of Seth saw the women of the daughters of Cain and they were beautiful to them and they married them 
Is that not in context with the scripture? If you just read it, wouldn't that, would you be thinking about demons or angels coming down if you just read it and didn't have, absolutely not. That's why you read it in the context. We read it in order as the way God's given it to us in scripture. And so, some have said, but that doesn't make any sense. God's going to be that mad, which we're going to see. God would be that upset for those in the line of Seth to marry those in the line of Cain. The answer is absolutely. God has called us not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Amen? And we live in a world today that takes that very lightly. But you need to understand that God does not take that lightly. Because when a marriage is not founded on the Lord, when both parties do not love God, the entire family is impacted in a hugely negative way. If only the husband is saved, then the impact of the wife's beliefs are impacting the children, and vice versa. And again, if you're in a marriage where one of you is saved and one of you is not, God has called you to stay there and be salt and light. If you're the husband, you be the spiritual leader. If you're the wife, you submit to your husband, you be a godly example to him. But if you're not married, you wait for the person God has for you. Amen? And you want nothing less than God's highest. God caused a deep sleep to fall over Adam and brought him his wife. He didn't give him a bow and arrow and say, go hunt yourself one down, go pick out a good one. He said, you wait, I'll bring you your wife. And the same is true for each of us. We're not to strive, we're to rest in the Lord. So the sons of God, reference to the just, godly line of Seth, the daughters of men, is the reference to the ungodly line of Cain. You know, it's interesting. The Cainites are characterized in chapter 4 as being clever cultured, having, you know, advanced civilizations, but also being extremely selfish, sensual, and ungodly. And then the line of Seth, these are the things said of them. They're devoted to God, they're consecrated to God, they enjoy fellowship with God, they testify for God, and they serve God. You see the clear contrast between the two? One is focused on the world, the other one's focused on God. If you are trying to be focused on God, and you marry somebody who's focused on the world. She used to use the illustration in youth group. You'd have a kid come and stand up on a chair, and one stand on the floor, and, the, and they'd each try to pull each other. The one on the chair would try to pull them up, and the one on the ground would try to pull them down. And the one on the ground would win every time. And there's so much to be said when you enter into a relationship with ungodly people, whether it be a, a, a marriage relationship or a dating relationship or you know, a partnership in business or whatever it might be, you know what, if you yoke yourself with an unbeliever, know that the chances of you being pulled down are great. So what's the transgression that so grieves the heart of God? It's these godly men being moved. Look what it says. The sons of God saw the daughters of men. So what was attractive about these women? Was it their character? Was it their godliness, their faithfulness? It was one thing, their looks. Now I know no other man in this room has ever been attracted to a girl solely on her looks. I know it's never happened to any of you. But these poor ungodly people. What happens is, when you focus only on the flesh, don't be surprised when you enter into a fleshly relationship. And that's what's happening here, is they saw the daughters of men. Again, man looks on the outward appearance. I titled these first few verses. These men are supposed to be walking with God, should have been looking for women on fire for God, who God would bring them, who would be godly wives and godly mothers, and instead they were allowing their physical attraction to take precedence. 
You know what? Sadly, this is what's happening in the church today. People tend to look for outward beauty rather than inward faith and character and holiness. And the result is marriages and homes and families and children that do not walk with God but walk in, in wickedness. You know what? One of Satan's tactics is to destroy the home. He wants to destroy your home. Guys, you need to hear this. He wants to destroy your home. You're called to be the spiritual leader. You need to set a standard for your home. Say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Remove all the stuff that's in your house that's dishonoring to God. You set a standard for your family. And don't, you know what, do it in love, but don't apologize for it. Amen? Do it in love. Be the spiritual leader. And you know what I found to be true? Godly women love godly men who will take the spiritual headship in their home. They love it. They long for it. But Satan wants to attack marriages. He wants to destroy them, render them ineffective. And again, God has a clear plan for marriage. He created it. He's the one who makes the rules. And he and he alone defines what marriage ought to be. Again, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That is not God's plan. I don't care how cute she is. I don't care how, how, what, how, you know, how rico suave he is. You know what? You wait. Trust God. It, you know what? I want to tell you something. Maybe I'm being a little selfish. So much of the counseling we do is when people go out, allow the flesh to drive them into a relationship, and now they've got a fleshly relationship that's fallen apart, that's a disaster, and they're trying to fix it when they should have brought it before God before they ever got involved. Amen? That was weak. Amen? And so I, let me encourage you that here we see the line of Seth, these godly men, allowing themselves to be distracted by the looks of a woman. Kind of like Samson, the he-man with a she-weakness. And he, these guys are the same way. That they're so allowing their eyes. Man looks on the outward appearance. And it says there, took wives for themselves of all of whom they chose. Whom they chose. Not who God chose, who they chose. And again, I, it sounds to people, people actually mock. I, you know, I talk with people sometimes about the fact that when my daughter and Kevin got married, when I said, you may now kiss the bride, that was the first time they had ever kissed. They waited. They honored God. People laugh and mock and go, oh, how old-fashioned. I say, you know what, how godly. How God ought to be honored in that, Amen. Let's wait. Let's trust God. You know what? It doesn't matter what standard the rest of the world has. Let's have God's standard. The rest of the world we live in today says you got to date everybody and you got, you know, hey, wait, buy buy a car without a test drive, all that other garbage that you hear. And you hear all this kind of stuff and we live in 2008 today and we should, you know what? That's the way of of this verse right here where they're looking on the outward appearance. But God is the one who looks at the heart. Do not be moved by the flesh, but be moved by the spirit. Not by outward beauty, but inward character. And know this, a woman who has inward character will have outward beauty. Amen? Nothing more beautiful to me than a woman who loves God, or a a man who loves God. It's an awesome thing. You see the Holy Spirit radiating through them, amen? And that's far more important than physical looks that will fade. My grandma used to always say, The beauty is only skin deep, but ugly goes all the way down to the bone. Verse 3. So how does God feel about this? this? How does God feel about them going out and finding somebody based solely on looks, leaving behind God's call upon their life, 
as the line through whom he would bring the Messiah, those who are the sons of God. And look what the, it says in verse 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he in, is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. The Lord said, My spirit will not strive with men forever. My spirit, the word spirit there is ruach. It's a word for breath or wind. When he breathed the spirit into them. And he's saying to them, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Because the people have become so wicked, they completely resisted the Spirit's witness. They refused to repent. They rejected the preaching of Enoch and no doubt Noah. And while he desires that none should perish, and while he indeed suffers long, guys, he's not going to suffer always. You know, he's a God of love and grace and mercy. He desires that none should perish, no, not one. But there's a time coming when righteous judgment will come. God is a, a loving God, a faithful God. Divine and righteous judgment is indeed coming, and he'll not allow us to remain in rebellion forever. He will not continue to woo us forever. He will draw us unto uh, unto him, but he'll never force salvation on anybody. He'll offer it freely to everybody. It's offered universally, but it must be accepted individually. God's not going to force you to go to heaven. He loves you, but he wants you to freely love him back. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. We have no promise of tomorrow. And notice here that their days are numbered. He says, yet his days shall be 120 years. Now some people have misinterpreted this verse to think that this means that after the flood, that people's age would go from the 900s to 120. And certainly there were some people that lived about that long, but that's not what he's talking about here. In context, what he's saying is, That their days, the days of these wicked people upon the earth are numbered. They've got 120 years to repent because 120 years from this point, the flood's coming. And he's letting them know that there's a day that God had already foreordained that the flood was coming. And they only had that many days to repent. And for the next 120 years, sadly, they're going to walk in wickedness. They're going to live their lives. They're going to continue to ignore God. He's showing them one last opportunity of grace, 120 more years to repent. But sadly, as you know, and you'll see it next week, only eight people out of potentially billions, certainly hundreds of millions, only eight people are going to be delivered. The rest are so caught up And the things of the world and the rebellion against God that they're going to miss it. Guys, 120 years, they didn't believe it if they heard it. But guys, our days are number two. Did you know that? Jesus Christ is coming back. And we don't know when it's going to be. And it could be tomorrow. But today's a day of salvation. Guys, we don't have the promise of tomorrow. You know, a guy that sits next to me at work, a 46-year-old guy. Most of you know I went back to work about five months ago. And the guy that sits next to me at work, a guy I just met, his name's Don. I've been talking to him about the Lord. He's been polite and listened, but not really interested. But I talked to him about the Lord all the time. And then last Friday, I got an, a voicemail. This 46-year-old man had gone into the hospital for pneumonia, and he died. 46 years old. None of us have the promise of tomorrow. Amen? And all that did was, it quickened my heart. That guy was sitting next to me for a couple of months. And every day I was talking to him and sharing the Lord with him. But you know what? 
I never, I never got to the point of saying, you know what, you need to be saved, Don. You need to give your life to Jesus Christ. Do you want to pray and ask him to be your savior? And you know what, when things like this happen, it pierces my heart for the next time. Amen? That we need to not be so afraid of what people are going to think. Today's a day of salvation. The days are numbered. We don't know when it is. No one's going to know exactly when it is. We don't. But you know what? The Lord does. This is the length of time until the flood. And man is so wicked. God is gracious beyond our imagination. The world is more wicked than any time. And here he is giving them 120 more years to repent. Again, it says in 2 Peter, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that we should come to repentance. 1 Peter 3 says, When one of when one, when one, the divine long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through the water. Shows the long-suffering of God. He waited 120 years so that eight people would be saved. Have you ever wondered why, looking at the world we live in today, why he hasn't come back? Anybody else besides me? We're going to talk about that as we move on. I look at how wicked the world is we live in today, and I wonder, Lord, why haven't you come? Let me tell you why he hasn't come. Maybe there's one more person that needs to be saved. Our God is a God of love and grace and mercy. He desires that none should perish, no, not one. Nobody's going to be in hell because they didn't have one more chance. It's going to be because they rejected the Lord, and he's going to wait for that last one. And he was willing to wait 120 years for Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. That's the God of grace that we serve, amen? God of love and incredible mercy. He waited 120 years knowing only eight would come. Verse four, there were giants on the earth in those days. The word there for giants is Nephilim. Anybody heard that name, that word before? Okay, now let me look at this again. There were giants on the earth in those days. Does it say anywhere that those giants were the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men? What's the answer? The answer is no. It says there were giants on the earth in those days. Here's one of the reasons people start thinking it was demons or angels having sex with women because there were giants and these giants must have come from somewhere. So it must have been some kind of freakish thing to create these giants. The giants were not even the offspring of these because look what it says, the rest of the verse. And also afterward, when? When? Afterward. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. It doesn't say they were the giants. The word Nephilim there, you know what it really means? And I don't even think that necessarily giant is the best interpretation. The Hebrew word doesn't mean necessarily great stature, but those who are reckless, ferocious, of daring character, who spread devastation and carnage everywhere they went. I don't believe it necessarily means they were big. What happens is somebody gets one word, they take it out of context, they try to make everything else around it fit. Remember when you take a text out of context, all you got left is a con, right? You need to remember that. In the context, as you read through this, you don't see the things that people are trying to force into this text. I've had people telling me when I started teaching Genesis, I can't wait till you get to Genesis chapter 6 verse 4. I want to hear what you say about the Nephilim. The Nephilim were not freaks born through the sons of God and the daughters of men. Amen? That's not what the text says. People find it, but you know what? Let's just read the word for what it says. 
And it says, also afterward, when the sons of God came to daughters of men, they bore children to them. So when the godly men of the line of Seth allowed themselves to be moved by their flesh and married the daughters of the ungodly line of Seth, the resulting children, it says, were mighty men of old, men of renown. Now basically what that means, men whose exploits of strength and violence had made them famous in song and in fable. Now, when... You take somebody and put them in an environment where you don't have two godly parents ministering to them. What has happened here is they've brought up children in a home where God is not being honored and the end result is rebellious children. We see here that these rebellious men of latter times, again, were those who were brought up in a home that had not made God the priority. Now, let me say this. You can... Have a home where God is the priority and your kids can still choose to rebel because they have free will. Sometimes people will try to condemn you and come after you because your kids are in rebellion and you must not be a very good parent. Let me encourage you with something that, you know what? Almighty God created Adam and Eve. That was his first, he's called the son of man, right? And what did he do? He rebelled. God gives us free will. Now, we should still raise them in a godly home. We should give them every opportunity to walk with God. We should set a godly standard, but ultimately, the choice to walk with God or not remains with them. These men of God compromised, and now their children were known not for great faith, but for their worldly and ungodly exploits. Here's the other, op- other thing, though. If we compromise our faith, we are not doing our kids any favors. Amen? Can I encourage you with something? Don't try to be popular with your kids. Try to be, be a dad, be a mom. Too often I see parents just cutting the kids some slack because they say, I don't want my kid to you know, be mad at me. I've had people tell me, well, I'm not going to send my kids to the Christian school because I don't want them to be bound so much. I, I want them to enjoy their freedom now because if you bind them up and, and, and put them in a school like that, then when they get to college, I'm like, Would you, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So why don't you let your three-year-old just make his own rules so he can get over it now? Play in the freeway, go for it. You know, I want you to get this out of your system. Never make it to four, amen? There's a reason why our kids are in our homes. There's a reason why we are the ones that set the standard. One of my boys right now hates driving all the way to Monta Vista Christian School. He hates it. He complains to me almost every day. Dad, I have to get up an hour and a half before my friend and drive all the way out there. Why can't I go to XYZ? I said, because I'm your dad. I've prayed about it. That's where you're going. And I love you. And I believe it's what God has best for you. So enjoy it. Amen? A week goes by. Dad, why do I have to? What did I tell you last time? I'm just keep telling you every day if I have to. I love you enough to have you mad at me for the next four years if that's what it takes. I'm going to put you in the best environment possible and it's going to be up to you to choose to walk with God. Sadly, these men had chosen their flesh and their lust and their own desire and made it more important than their walk with God and now their entire families were reaping the consequences of it. There's nothing new under the sun. So, man looks on the outward appearance, but look at verses 5 through 9. We're going to see now that God looks on the heart. It says, now we saw that, that man saw what? The sons of God saw the daughters of men. They're looking at the outward appearance. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of the heart was, was only evil continually. So what was God looking at? 
their hearts. You don't see God talking about how big they are, how strong they are, how accomplished they are. All he's looking at is their heart. God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Note the key words there. Every intent. Only evil continually. In their relationship with evil, you see mankind. You know, mankind was given great attributes by God. You know, he created us in his image. And he gave us the ability to think, to create, to act, to communicate. We've been created in his image to be used for his glory. But in our fallen state, what does man use all these God-given qualities to accomplish? The pursuit of fleshly desires. Pushing the boundaries of wickedness. Evilness continually. Evilness only. God looking at the heart of man and he sees what's in his heart. When God looks at our hearts, what does he see? Does he see us desperate for him? Does he see us in love with him? Is he the passion of your life? Notice that it says his intent, his actions. But look at this, even his thoughts. So here they are, as wicked as they can be, and when they finally stop from all their wicked behavior, they they sit down and think of more wicked things they can do. This is the world in the days of Noah. Can I say that I don't think we've, we've gone far from it? This is one of the strongest and clearest statements in all of Scripture about the sinful nature of man, that man is continually evil. Now, we, notice he says the thought life. You've heard this said before. You know, your thoughts impact your behavior. The Bible says, you know, and the Bible doesn't say, it's, it's been said. Let me make it clear. It's been said. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. It begins with our thought life. What do you meditate on? When you wake up in the morning, what do you start your day thinking about? Are you meditating on the Lord? Are you spending time in His presence? You know what? It was true of those individuals that their thoughts were continually evil. And again, I believe it's true of the world we live in today. Constantly pushing the boundaries of evil. Look at entertainment today. And I'm just going to share from my heart for a few minutes. Because I'll tell you what, this bothers me to no end. But I'll tell you what, praise God, He's a gracious God. Why is it that they are trying to figure out just how filthy they can be on TV and get away with it. Are they trying not to do that? Is that true or not? How much foul language can we get on television? How much inappropriate behavior can we get? How much can we jam down their throats? And as soon as they get to the point where they've made you know, a new standard for wickedness on television that is now acceptable, they try to push it to the next level. And they're not going to be happy until... You know, television is, and it's almost there, is just straight X-rated. This is the world we live in today. Primetime TV, what does it promote? Adultery, fornication, sexual immorality, homosexuality, pride, vanity, dishonesty, lust, vengeance, ungodliness. And again, the push is not toward godliness, but more and more evil. Now, let's move from TV to the internet. What has the internet done? The internet has brought into your home the access to every kind of evil that exists. Is that true or not? It's absolutely true. Brings pornography and ungodly music and gambling and even child predators right into our homes. And when you stand against it, you know what? You're a prude and you're, and you're called someone who's trying to censor freedom of speech. There's some speech that needs to be censored. 
I'm sick and tired of us standing and waving the flag. You know, we need to stand and wave the word of God. Amen? And you know what? The guys who founded our country would be blown away if they saw the debacle this nation has become. I'm not a super political guy. You all know that. And I don't align with, I'm not aligning with a, a candidate. I'm aligning with Jesus Christ. And let's stand up for him and let's not apologize for the word of God and encourage your kids to take their Bible to school anyway and to pray anyway. Amen? It's just so nauseating to me that everything's acceptable except that which is godly. We live in a land where we murder babies and we call it a woman's right to choose. We commit adultery, we call it an affair. We promote homosexuality in the name of civil rights. We outlaw prayer and God's word from our schools and we say we're standing up for the rights of those who don't believe. We abuse drugs and alcohol and we call it a form of relaxation. And the only people whose behavior is mocked is those who stand up for Almighty God today. There's nothing new under the sun. In the days of Noah, their thoughts and their intents were evil continually, and the world we live in today is just the same way. Guys, we're called to be salt and light here. Amen? We're called to be the ones who make a stand for the truth, who say that sin is sin. Do it in love. Never be self-righteous. But we need to be unashamed of our Lord. Guys, we're not going to get to heaven and wish we had spoken less of Him. In Noah's day... Man's thoughts and intents and actions were only on evil continually. Could any less be said about today? Lord, help us. Can I tell you how burdened I am for our schools? Most of you know that I was a youth pastor for many, many years. I have such a burden for our teenagers, I can't even tell you. And one of the things I'm praying about with the building that we're pursuing is that if the Lord would allow it, that we would have a Christian school that preaches Jesus Christ and crucified and risen from the dead every single day. The word of God is the textbook for every single class outside of math. Can we learn history from the Bible? What's the answer? You know, can we learn every, can we learn English from the Bible? How about English papers that we outline a book of the Bible? I love that my kids come home. One of my sons is doing history class and he was studying the book of Exodus. And I said, that's awesome. Praise God for that. You know what? That's history, amen? Go back to the book of Exodus. I have such a burden today for us to get back to the word of God. I'm so t- Even today, the political correct world we live in, everybody's apologizing for the word. Have you ever noticed how the word of God is the only thing that's not allowed? You can get up and speak at your graduation and talk about your homosexuality. You can talk about Buddha if you want to. You just can't talk about Jesus Christ. Lord, help us as a nation to get our eyes back on you. And look how the Lord responds to their evil being on their heart. Look what it says. And the Lord, verse 6, was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Wow. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. Why? Because godly men had chosen to be wed to ungodly women And they had produced offspring that now their thoughts and intents were evil continually. Now let me ask you again. If that was true in Noah's day, is the Lord sorry that he made us? Now again, remember, in the midst of all of that, there's always a godly remnant and praise God for his grace. But in the midst of all of it right now, I'm amazed by the grace of our God. I'm blown away. 
God created man to have fellowship with him, to walk with him in the cool of the day. He created the perfect environment for man to dwell. He gave us free will that we might choose to love him. He gave us a voice that we might worship him. He gave us intellect and gifts and abilities that we might use them for his glory. All he had done, all he had given him, they took all those gifts and what did they do? They used them for evil. He gave them all of these blessings and they used them for evil. They used them to satisfy their flesh instead of to honor God. With a voice he gave them to worship, they gossiped and mocked his name. With the hands that he gave to minister to others, they used to to harm and murder and kill. You know, all the freedoms that they had been given by God to be used for his glory, they used instead to pursue evil. Oh, how it breaks the heart of our God. You know, sin breaks our Savior's heart. Amen? Look what it says. It says here, he was grieved in his heart. Do you know you can only grieve over someone you love? You don't grieve over people. You might say, oh, that's too bad. You feel, you feel bad about it. But when do you really grieve? When are you brought to weeping? When does it bring you to, to your knees and you're just broken and, and your heart aches? When does that happen? When it's somebody you love. Amen? And he was grieved. Why? Because even though they were living in evil continually, he loved them. And guys, even though you and I struggle with evil and sin and wickedness every single day, he loves you. You're his treasured possession. He proved it in that he'd rather die than live without you. His holiness, again, requires righteous judgment. Our God, again, he's so gracious. He suffers long, but he can't suffer always. He won't suffer always. Sin must be and will be dealt with. It must be removed. Verse 7. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth. Some people read words like this, and then what do they want to say? What kind of God is that? Right? What kind of God is that that would bring judgment upon people? I thought he loved us. Uh, He's been striving with these men. He's given them 120 more years to repent after they've been walking, for many of them, 800 years in evil continually. He's a God of love and grace and mercy who desires none should perish, no, not one, but he will never force himself upon us. This judgment was not coming because God was unfair, but because man was ungodly. Amen? This is the problem. And too often, men want to blame God. God is not at fault. God's righteous, he's holy, it's men and women today, as in the days of Noah, who want to continue on in their sinful and wicked behavior without so much as being questioned or concerned with a word from anyone. You know, I want to live my life, don't anybody tell me how I have to live. You leave me alone and kind of give God that. You know, it's my life, I'll live it any way I want to. And you know what? You absolutely have the choice to do that. But do not be surprised when there are consequences to your actions. When you're rejecting God, he'll give you the very thing you've asked for, which is to be separated from him. This is why I believe the number one reason people believe the foolishness of evolution. 
Let me tell you why. The number one reason I believe they believe it. They believe it because if you believe it, you're not accountable to anyone. I believe many of them would believe creation as long as it didn't mean that there was a creator that they were accountable to. And the fact that it's a religion is proof that they stick Darwin fish on the back of their cars. Amen? Now, is it, now I'm going to confess to you the frailty of your pastor. Does that make you mad or, or is it only me? Do you ever pull up next to the person to see what they look like when they got a Darwin fish on the back of their car? I do every time. I look over. I used to want to go, but I don't do that. No, that would be wrong. What I do instead, you know what God's been putting on my heart the last few years? Pray for him. Pull up next to their car and pray for him. Anybody believes, this takes way more faith to believe that lie than to believe that Almighty God created us in his image. Amen? Can I, I took an anatomy in class in college. Anybody can take an anatomy class and not believe in Almighty God. You missed it. God created us in his image. But sadly, there are so many that would rather do anything than give their life over to the Lord. Man is sinful and wicked. He refuses to repent. God is sorry that he made them. But even in the midst of this great rebellion and depravity, God's perfect will would be not be thwarted. Even though I have no idea how many people are on the earth. But let's say there's a billion people. All but eight of them are walking in continual evil. And in the midst of that, God's will is still going to be done. Because you know what? You can't stop God. Amen? But men were walking continually in evil, but praise God that he's still in control. And in the midst of all of that, we're going to find that there's one who is faithful. The Messiah is still going to come through the line of Seth. He would still send his son to redeem sinful mankind. While all of mankind was walking in wickedness, there would still be one who was found faithful. You know, the Bible says, For the eyes of the Lord search to and fro among the whole earth, seeking one he can show himself strong on account of, one who is loyal to him. So it's what God sees that matters. God looks on the... Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart, he knows our thoughts and intentions. But look at this part. He pours out grace on those who walk with him. Look what it says in verse 8. So we've talked about all the wickedness. He's sorry that he made them. He's going to destroy them from the face of the earth. They've been given 120 years of, of one last measure of grace to get right with God. You know, everyone's walking in continual evil. Everybody on the planet, the face of the earth is covered with evil. And then you see these two words, but Noah. But Noah. And I love things like this. There was one guy in the midst of hundreds of millions or billions who was walking with God. And you know what that should tell every one of us? It doesn't matter if nobody else is walking with God, you still can. If nobody at your workplace is walking with God, you still can. If nobody in your family is walking with God, you still can. No matter where you are, you can walk with God because here we have Noah did it. And Noah didn't even have all the advantages you and I have because we have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. Amen? And we can walk with God whether anybody else does or not. Noah was the tenth from Adam. He was in the line of Seth. And in the midst of all the righteous judgment that's about to come, it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The sons of God, of the line of Seth, looked with fleshly eyes and saw women and went out and married women they shouldn't have. 
and the end result was an ungodly generation. God looks down and he sees the thoughts and the intents of man's heart and he sees that virtually all of them are wicked and their wickedness is continual. It's in their thought life, it's in their actions, it's what their whole life is about, evil, pushing it, getting more of it. And that's the world we live in today. But in the midst of all of that, the the eyes of the Lord saw the one man who was walking with him. You know what? God sees evil, but he sees those who love him too. Amen? And he never takes his eyes off of you. You are always on his mind. He's always focused on you. He's always thinking about you. The Bible says he's numbered the hairs on your head. He cares about every detail of your life and who you are. That's the God that we serve. And it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Notice he found grace. He didn't earn grace. Amen? Noah didn't earn grace. He found grace. Then it says, you know, here's the thing, guys. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. No matter how sinful and wicked a place is, God's grace is sufficient. Amen? An encouragement for those of us in Santa Cruz. God's grace is sufficient. God is a loving and a merciful God. And he's poured out his grace on this one who is walking with him. The one that the world rejected God and there's one man standing for God. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. His life was evidence of one who was walking in grace. Look what it says. This is the genealogy, last verse, of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. So let me give you definitions for those. Noah was a just man. The word just there means he did what was right or wrong based on God's definition. His understanding of right and wrong was not what the world did, but what God says. Boy, do we need to get back to that today. Amen? It's not what the world says is right. It's what the Word of God says. It doesn't matter if there's 300 million people in this country and, and all but 10 of them believe it's okay to have sex outside of marriage. It's still wrong because God's Word says so. Amen? It doesn't matter if 80% of the people in this country believe that abortion is okay. It's still murder because the Word of God says so. Guys, the Word of God is the standard. And there's an enemy who's coming into our homes, you know, through entertainment and convincing our kids that it's okay to have an abortion. It's okay to have sex outside of marriage. You know what? Homosexuality is a perfectly fine alternative lifestyle. All these things are coming into our house and there's a point where we get desensitized to sin. And you know what? We need to be resensitized to sin by the power of the Holy Spirit and the godly standard of the Word of God. We need to get back to the point where God's Word is the only standard in our house. Nothing else. And Noah found grace in the eyes of God because he was a just man who used the word of God. What God says is the standard, not what men say. Then it says not only was he just, but he was perfect in his generation. The word perfect there means blameless. There was no accusation about Noah that anybody could make. They couldn't point a finger at Noah and say anything about him walking in rebellion against God. Even though everyone around him was walking in rebellion, he was not. Now, this does not mean Noah was sinless. It just means that he was without accusation. This is a prerequisite for someone who's to be in leadership in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, speaking of a pastor, said he must be blameless. Not sinless, or we'd have no pastors. 
but blameless, which means without accusation from the outside. When people hear your name, they don't say, oh, that's the guy who, and something that follows. That's the guy who blows his temper all the time. That's the guy who cheated on his wife. That's the guy who struggles with drugs and alcohol. That's the guy, no, there's no, nothing like that. And that was the testimony of Noah in a world where everyone else was walking in rebellion against God. Now, how did Noah, how could he be perfect? How could he be just in the midst of this generation? Here's the answer, last four words of our text this this evening. Noah walked with God. Guys, there's the answer. How do you walk a just life? You walk with God. How do you walk blameless when the whole world is walking outside of God's will? You walk with God. You enter into intimate fellowship with Him. Then and only then do we live lives that are pleasing unto the Lord. It's only possible, not because of His ability, not because He tried really hard, He walked with God. It's interesting that His grandfather's name was Enoch. Remember Enoch? What did it say about Enoch? Enoch did what? He walked with God and he was no more. God just took him home. He was so close to God, God said, you know, we're just so close anyway, just come on up the rest of the way. And he took Enoch away. But he left Noah to be the remnant through his family would come the Messiah. God says, you know what, the rest of the world has fallen away from me, but there's still one I can use. The eyes of the Lord Search to and fro among the whole earth, seeking one he can show himself strong on account of. For you and I today, we're justified at salvation, just as if you never sinned. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, your sin is washed away, all sin, past, present, and future. But you know what? We continue to be sanctified. The word sanctified means set apart unto the Lord, set apart for holy use. So as Christians, though we're going to heaven, we're still being conformed more and more to the image of our Savior every single day as we pursue him. But guys, it doesn't stop at sanctification because one day we're going to be in heaven and we won't just be justified and sanctified, but we'll be glorified. We'll be just, we'll be in that perfect body where we'll never sin again. Amen? But until then, like Noah, may we walk with God. May we be faithful and obedient when nobody else is. Can I encourage you that God's got you where he has you for a reason? The next time you feel outnumbered at work, remember Noah. The next time you're sitting at the dinner table at a family reunion and you look around the table and you want to pray before your meal and you realize nobody else here is saved, remember Noah. Next time you're at the break room at work and you feel, remember Noah. And you know what? Remember how God looked and saw a man who was willing to make a stand for him in the midst of a perverse and wicked generation. Guys, the good news is you and I have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We're never alone. The Lord loves you. He will never call you to do anything that he won't equip you to do. The Lord saw the wickedness of men, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. May we find grace. How do we do that? We press into him. We trust in him. We follow after him. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro among the whole earth, seeking one he can show himself strong on account of, one whose heart is loyal to him. It's what the Lord sees that matters. Man looks on the outward appearance, and he succumbs to the lust of the flesh. God looks on the heart. He knows our thoughts. He knows our intentions. He promises righteous judgment upon those who reject him, but he pours out out his grace upon those who walk with him. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we worship you, Lord. And Father, I just come burdened this evening, Lord, for our country. Lord, I pray that you would just bring revival here. Lord, I pray you'd start here in Santa Cruz, a place that seems so unlikely to the world around us. But we thank you, God, that though we may be outnumbered, that God, you're faithful, and you plus us plus you is the majority. And Father, I pray that we would live in such a way that people would want to know you. Not because we, we yell louder, not because we vote in the right candidate, but Lord, because we live so passionately in love with you that we reach out and love on them and they can't help but notice something's different. Father, I do pray for our, our children, Lord. I pray and ask in Jesus' name that you would protect them, that you would watch over them. And Lord, I pray you'd raise up some mighty young men and women of God who could make a stand for you in our public school system. Father, be with them. Lord, give them boldness. Protect them. Lord, I pray you continue to raise up godly teachers as well, those who would make a stand for you. And Lord, we just thank you and praise you, Lord, that for such a time as this, you've placed us upon the earth. You brought us here for a reason. And Lord, I pray that we would be like Noah. Lord, that no matter what's going on around us, Father, we keep our eyes on you. We'd press into you. We'd seek after you. We'd love nothing more than you. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.